All right, let's open up in our Bibles now. We are in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and the title of this sermon is, Uh-oh. <laughs> you'll, you'll see why in a few minutes when we get to Acts chapter 5. We're in Acts 4, dipping into Acts chapter 5. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. I want us to remember a little bit of the context where we are. In the last couple of weeks here in the book of Acts, we have seen this young church step into a brand new experience for them, and that was persecution. This church has been experiencing persecution. And we'll see it for several chapters. We'll see it through the whole book of Acts, but we'll see a bunch of it unfold over the next few chapters. Now, as the American church, we kind of have to think hard about persecution, being persecuted as Christians. We don't really experience much of that. We maybe experience sort of a neutered form of that through cultural pressure, but it's hard for us to really lay hold of real life-threatening persecution as the American church. So we need to really give some thought to it. You know, our reality is not the reality for the church around the world. Just yesterday or this morning, I don't know, time zone stuff, but in Indonesia, in the city of Surabaya, which is a place that we're praying about the family that we just had up here, Saul and his family going, there were three churches that were bombed by suicide bombers. ISIS has claimed uh, responsibility for it. There are 14 people, Christians dead, 45 hospitalized, and then another suicide bomb was detonated before it got to the church just recently during our last service. So, man, this kind of stuff, like persecution that we're going to see in the book of Acts, it's very real for them. And they are us. We are them. We are family together. We are part of one another. So it's important as faithful biblical Christians that we think rightly about persecution, that we think about our brothers and sisters around the world that are experiencing it, for whom it is a, a profound reality. Now, this persecution broke out because Peter and John had been preaching Jesus. You'll remember that they were going to the temple for a prayer meeting at three in the afternoon, and they saw a guy begging there, and he's asking them for money. And Peter said, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he grabbed his arm, pulled him up, and the man was instantly healed and began to walk. And it caused quite a commotion. Everyone was wondering, wow, how did this happen? And he began to preach Jesus. Jesus crucified and resurrected from the dead, and that through Jesus, this man was healed. And the religious leaders in the story, who were the really supreme authority in Jerusalem at this time, they did not want Peter and John to be preaching about Jesus. They saw Jesus and his kingdom as a threat to their well-being. So they, with their authority, arrested Peter and John, threw them in prison, real prison, not make-believe prison, threw them in prison for preaching Jesus, and then commanded them not to talk about Jesus anymore in Jerusalem. And Peter and John said in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20 from last week, listen, you can decide whether it's right for us to listen to you or God, but we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard in Jesus. And so they intended to go right on preaching about Jesus. And so when they got out of jail the next day, they went back to where the church was gathered and they engaged in a prayer meeting. They did what the church always should do in the face of opposition. They began to pray. And this prayer meeting, as you read in the text last week, had spectacular results. There are some exciting things that happened as a result of them praying together in the face of persecution. So that's where we'll pick it up today. We'll back up into one verse from last week, and we'll read verse 31 of chapter 4, and then we'll read to the end of chapter 4 for now. It says in Acts 4.31, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
We thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us. We thank you for your work on the cross by which we've been brought into your kingdom. We thank you that in your kingdom, our lives have purposes which are greater than we ever could have imagined for ourselves. We thank you, Jesus, that you are alive and working in our midst even now. Even today, you're working in our midst. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to be attentive to your work, to be receptive to your work and what you're saying to us. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would conform us to the image of Christ. You'd shape our hearts and our minds and our lives, our thoughts and our actions and feelings to be more like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. That you make us a bold, faithful, humble church for your purposes here and beyond. We ask together, please, Lord, that you would anoint me by your spirit to teach and preach in a way that's humble and faithful and helpful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I I just want us to notice here in that little vignette that we read. I want us to notice the results of a church praying together. I want us to see the results of the church praying together in the face of opposition. They got together in this room, and it says after they prayed, the room shook. That's cool. The room shook, and then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it starts right there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time that they've been filled with the Spirit. You remember back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Spirit. And then you remember in a previous chapter when Peter began to preach, he was again filled with the Spirit. And here now we see the Christians being filled with the Spirit again. And it's important for us to realize that being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time thing for the Christian. Being filled with the Spirit is meant to be, by God, a continual, repeated experience of the Christian. In fact, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 18, and said, you should all be being continually filled with the Spirit. And here they were, filled with the Spirit once again. But I want you to notice the impetus for their praying and the filling. It was that there was great need. Here was a group of people who were determined to live out the purposes of God, even in the face of opposition. So they knew that they then needed the resources of God. And the person of the Holy Spirit is God resourcing us to live out the life in the kingdom of Christ here in our world. And God always has resource for us when we're endeavoring to live as faithful Christians. And so they're filled with the Spirit once again. The common prayer of the Christian ought to be, God, fill me with your spirit. When there's trouble in your marriage and it's in danger, God, fill me, fill us with your spirit. When you're seeking to raise your kids and you don't know what to do, God, fill me with your spirit. When you've been suffering with sickness and disease and you feel weak, God, fill me with your spirit. When you're at work and there's a chance to stand for righteousness, God, fill me with your spirit. The common cry of the Christian would be, God, fill me with your spirit. Wayne Grudem is my favorite modern theologian, and he has kind of a neat explanation for what it is to be filled with the Spirit. He says, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself. And it therefore will result in feeling what God feels, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge which God himself gives. Now, who doesn't need that? And who doesn't need more of that? And that's available to us as believers. This is, Jesus said it was the promise of the Father, the gift of the Father to us. I think we could all grow in dependence upon the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then look at the results as they were filled, filled. Excuse me. We saw in the text that in light of being filled with the Spirit once again, they were committed to being bold. Right? It says at the end of verse 31, and they spoke the word of God boldly, that they experienced a new depth of unity. It says in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and they engaged in extreme generosity. Right? They begin to share all of their stuff together. I want you to notice the church experienced opposition against the message of Jesus. They prayed to Jesus. They were filled with God's spirit and it made them confident and bold, 
united together and generous in meeting one another's needs. When God is moving powerfully amongst his people, the book of Acts seems to be telling us that part of the evidence of that is generosity amongst God's people. Because it isn't the first time we've seen this sort of exchange. The spirit falls and they're generous with each other. We saw it back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, right? And we have almost the same description in Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45, that they were sharing with each other. So whoever in the church had needs, they were being met. There was this extreme sort of generosity going on in response to the move of God. Whenever God is moving amongst the people, God's people will become generous because our God is a generous God. For God so loved the world that he gave. And how did he give? He gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. The Bible teaches us from Genesis to Revelation that God is a generous giver. And so we then who are people called after his name, are meant to also be generous people because we are the recipients of the generosity of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So to live that out then means to be generous people. And when God's presence and power fills us in the person of the Spirit, that will always be moving us toward generosity. God's Spirit is always going to be moving us toward generosity. And you know, in the modern church, we look around for a lot of signs of the Spirit. Like, okay, people are speaking in tongues. Is that, is that the Spirit there? There's, there's fire things over here. Is that the Spirit there? There's gold dust there. Is that the Spirit there? The book of Acts seems to be teaching us that a sure evidence of God's Spirit filling a people is generosity amongst the people. Now look at that little bit of text that explained their generosity. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that they met one another's needs. They realized that their greatest need in existence had been met in Jesus. So they're meeting one another's needs. Now, there was a display of this in rather extreme terms. It says some of them were selling houses and land, right? And bringing to the apostles' feet to provide for other people. That's extreme. It wasn't necessarily the norm. It's not that everybody was doing that. It says there from time to time. So it's not that everybody in the church did that and that was a new norm. This isn't teaching some early form of Christian communism. That's not what's happening here. Some people were so moved by what Jesus had done for them and the family of faith that they had been brought into that when they saw that some were in need and they had extra, they were happy to provide even through such extreme means. Now some commentators point out that the Greek language there is denotes that these were extra fields and extra houses. Like, dude, I'm going to sell my summer house and I'm going to sell my backup field, whatever. I don't know exactly, but still, they were meeting one another's needs in extreme self-sacrificial way. Generosity isn't generosity unless it's self-sacrificial, not the Jesus-style generosity. And then it tells us here of something that we do as well. They were bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet. So the apostles is a representative body of the church leadership. They would bring the money there. And what they were doing was they were trusting in Jesus. They were trusting the leadership there, the apostles at the time, to distribute the funds to those who needed them most. The body supplied them and trusted it to the leadership, believing that they would bring glory to Jesus by the way that they cared for people through those funds. And later on, when we get to chapter 6, we'll see that that becomes a really big job and there's some structures put around that. They identify, okay, we need some people to help us with this ministry of distributing the funds and meeting people's needs. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 6. There's some structure around that. But we do this all the time as a church as well, right? Every week, most of you give and you're entrusting in Christ, you're entrusting the leadership of the church to rightly steward those funds to those who are in need and for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. 
And so you don't always have a one-for-one one, like, oh man, I just gave this money and went directly to that person in need. You don't always get to experience a one-for-one. One. But I'd just like to take a moment because it was happening here and report to you that we give away thousands of dollars every month to people in our community who are in need. All week long, we have people who come to us and say, I can't make rent this month. I can't afford to get my uh, car repaired. Can't afford to move my kid to college. There's all sorts of reasons that people come to us. And then we have processes by which we pray and discern and interview. If the need is legitimate, that's part of the responsibility of church leadership. Is this a legitimate need? And then we take care of them with the funds that you gave on behalf of the church. And that's one of the ways that it works together. So you're directly involved in this all the time. We just funded uh, Carpentry High School has a program where they provide food for uh, kids in our community who cannot afford to bring food to school nor purchase food at school. So they have a food bank for them. We, as Reality Carpentry, just funded that for an entire year. So there you guys are. Yeah, praise God for that. Praise God. There you guys are, right? You're giving generously, self-sacrificially. You're entrusting the leadership of the church. And then we do things like that in the community. And I I just want to say that you guys are, in case you didn't know, a generous church. Proud of the way that you give. I think it's an evidence of God's spirit moving among us. Again, the book of Acts is teaching that when God's spirit is moving, God's people will be generous under the influence of the spirit. Now, you guys only have to endure my sermons for about 55 minutes on a Sunday. I'm telling you, it's going to be about 55 minutes. I have to endure this stuff all week long. Because I start studying on Monday, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking about this stuff all week long. And the Spirit of God is just like lovingly torturing me with this kind of stuff all week long. Man, listen, if you don't want to hear from God, don't go on a hike by yourself. I went on a couple of hikes this week by myself and I, I discovered like, wow, God is like meeting me and speaking to me in so many ways and busting me in so many ways. And I've really had to take stock because I think the Lord showed me this week that I am on sort of a downward trajectory as it pertains to generosity. I think the Lord showed me that when I was younger, uh, that I was a more generous person. And that this is a real area for growth in my life. For example, I didn't discuss this with my wife before. I should have, but sorry, honey. If you want me to stop, go like that or like this. Uh, When we first got this church building, we were a young church, 2003. We knew we had to build it out. It was going to cost $2 million to build it out. We were a small church. We didn't have any, you know, money, whatever. And so we said to one another as a church, listen, if we're going to do this, if we're going to build this place out and have this house of worship, we have to provide. So we all have to do that together. And we got to give self-sacrificially. It's a lot of money. And my wife and I had a life savings at the time. It was everything that we had ever saved up until that point, And we gave it to the church to contribute to the building fund. And it wasn't hard for us to do that. Man, God was just moving so powerfully in our midst. And we were so joyful at experiencing that, that that was a really easy thing for us to do. Now, you guys know that as a church, we might have to be out of this building at the end of August. We might be looking for other places. We might be hoping for land to purchase and a building to build. And if we do, it's going to cost all of us a lot of money. We're all going to have to give self-sacrificially and generously. And I was thinking about this this week because now my life savings is significantly larger than it was then, 15 years ago. And I thought about, are Kate and I going to do the same thing? Are we just going to turn over our whole life savings to the church to, you know, build this new place where we can have a church for the next generation and school of ministry and mission and all this stuff that we want to do. And I'll tell you what, man, I struggle with it. I struggle with the thought of doing that. So the Spirit's been speaking to me that I'm on a bit of a downward trajectory with generosity. That's a, that's a kind warning from the Spirit's love, you know? So maybe a prayer would be, God, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with the presence and the joy of Jesus to not love money so much, but to be willing to meet the needs of the body. Even as a church in general, you know, uh, at one point in the early life of our church, we had saved $20,000 as a church. And uh, we heard of a missionary, or excuse me, yeah, it was a missionary, but a missionary who was building an orphanage in Asia, somewhere and they needed $20,000 and we said we have $20,000 so we gave them all the money that was right before this building project and we had to be saving for this building project so we gave them 
all the money to do that. You know, and we had nothing. We just trusted the Lord. And we did that joyfully. I've been thinking about the way that we make decisions lately and I've realized, man, sometimes we give to our church plants and missionary organizations and other things slightly less liberally with less faith and with a little less joy. I don't think it's because we're older and wiser. I think it's because we're older and less generous. I've been repenting of that. So maybe it's a good opportunity for you to think about am I, what, what's the trajectory of my life as it pertains to generosity with God's people? What is God saying to me about money and the love of money and resources and how I ought to steward those things for the kingdom of God? Now, I want you to see what happens now. Satan, anytime like Christ is really moving in the church, you can be sure that the enemy is going to attack it. Okay, you want to know how to not deal with the devil? Don't do a dang thing for Jesus, right? As a church or as an individual, don't live for Jesus and the devil's not going to mess with you. But you know, the moment you start living for Jesus as an individual and we do it as a church together, there's going to be opposition from the enemy. So the first bit of opposition that we already saw was from the religious leaders, right? It was opposition from without, trying to conquer the church through sheer force of this authority structure. That didn't work. Now Satan is going to change strategies. Realizing that he could not conquer the church from an outside force, he is now going to try to corrupt the church from the inside. To destroy it from within. That's where we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will also carry you out. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Uh Uh-oh. That's like a for real uh uh-oh. How are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to feel about this? Let's examine some of the details, first of all, as we try to discern how we should think and feel about this. It's important to say that Ananias and Sapphira were under no obligation to sell their property and give the money to the church. They were under no obligation. That wasn't the norm, I told you, right? It already said from time to time people were doing that. It wasn't that everybody was doing it. There probably wasn't even a significant amount of peer pressure. They were under no obligation to do so. No one was coercing them. No one was requiring that of them. And once they sold the property, they could have given any amount that they wanted to or not. Right? Peter says to them in verse 4, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Right? So it was totally their thing. Wasn't the money at your disposal and you own the land? They did not have to give whatsoever. Now, it seems, and some commentators say, that they might have approached the leadership before and said, look, 
we're going to sell this piece of land and we're going to give all the proceeds to the church. So there was some sort of pre-existing agreement there. Because one of the words used for they kept back the money for themselves is a word we'd use in the Greek language for stole. So it seems that there might have been this pre-arrangement and now they're not honoring. But Peter says, that's okay. You, you could have done that, right? They could have sold the land and then come and said, dude, here's the deal, bro. The market is hot. It's like Carpinteria right now. Like we didn't think we were going to get that much, but we got 3 million bucks for this lot. So we're not giving the whole thing. We're going to give some of it, but we're not going to give all of it. And Peter had been like, that's awesome. Praise God. Do what you want to do before the Lord according to your conscience before him. There's no pressure and that's no problem. And that would have been perfectly okay. And that's always okay with God. Uh, One of my, he's a cool commentator, this guy, John Phillips says, God is a great respecter of our property as he is of our persons. He covets no person's money. What is not freely given out of a spirit of generosity and integrity, he neither needs nor wants. What is not given out of a spirit of generosity and integrity, he neither needs nor wants. The sin here was not that they held back some of the money for themselves. There would have been no sin in that. The sin here was that they pretended to be something they weren't. You know, they saw Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. Barnabas sold something and he brought it and he gave all the money to them. And I don't know, they may have esteemed Barnabas in a certain way. And they said, well, we want to be esteemed in a certain way by the people. The sin was that they pretended to be more holy, more dedicated, more generous, and more spiritual than they really were. The Bible seems to teach us that that's a real offense before God, faking it. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus is generally pretty nice to people in the Gospels. But there's a few people to whom he was not very nice. Who were they? They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the what you sees. They were the religious leaders. <laughs> that was good. That just happened. <laughs> they were the religious leaders. And Jesus' main complaint toward them was that they were fakers. They put on a show at the outside to appear to be something that they weren't so that they could be highly esteemed by people. He said about them, they love to pray in public and they pray long. They love to wear certain robes so that everybody notices when they walk by that they're super religious. They love certain seats at all the banquets so that everybody knows they're really important. And Jesus said about them, they look good on the outside. They're like a whitewashed tomb, but on the inside, there's death. Jesus was really mean to those guys. Quite honestly, it seems that God has a real thing about spiritual fakers. I mean, I don't know how to soften the blow of this, but he just killed Ananias and Sapphira for the sin of faking it. And the result of that is, it says in verse 11, great fear sees the whole church. Well, no, duh. I mean, everything's been going so well. I mean, Peter and John got thrown in jail, but it was only for a night. And then we prayed and the building shook and now we're bold and we're united and we're generous and Barnabas is doing awesome things. This is great. And then God kills Ananias and Sapphira in judgment. Great fear. Now, it was probably multifaceted fear. There's probably some confusion. There's probably all sorts of wondering what was going on. It's probably a multifaceted fear. It probably included, to some degree, a healthy fear of the Lord, which is a biblical concept, a healthy fear of the Lord. But nonetheless, when this happened, the people felt afraid. I want to ask you something that I never, ever ask you. How do you feel about this text? And what God does here. How do you feel about it? How does this text make you feel? I think if we were to be honest, we may realize that it makes a lot of us feel a bit ruffled toward God. 
ruffled. It means upset. And this is pretty harsh. It makes us feel a little ruffled, a little upset, a little disquieted toward God. That's probably honest for some of us. I want to suggest, because I felt that way this week studying this, I want to suggest that God is not the culprit here. There are three culprits in the story. It's explicit. Satan, Ananias, and Sapphira. They're the culprits in the story. Now, the blame is not laid at the feet of Satan. I want you to notice that. It said that Satan lied to Ananias' heart, right? Satan was behind this thing. He couldn't conquer the church from without. Now he's trying to corrupt the church from within. He's planted these thoughts and these motives and this deception in their hearts. But the Bible doesn't lay the blame at the foot of Satan. Listen, Satan is going to do what Satan does. That's what Satan does. But the cross of Jesus Christ and his victory over the enemy has removed the common excuse of the Christian that we sometimes try to utter, well, the devil made me do it. You know what? As Jesus' people, we don't get to say that anymore. Because the Bible says that the devil cannot make you do it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that we are new creations and that we are no longer slaves to sin and sin no longer has ultimate power over us. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that no temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out also. So in the power of Jesus and the new life that we have and his spirit in us, there's always a way out from the schemes of the enemy. That's why James wrote and said, stand firm and resist the schemes of the enemy. Peter said, stand firm, be sober, and resist in your faith the schemes of the enemy. So there are three culprits here. It's the devil, it's Ananias and Sapphira. The devil gets off the hook. He's just doing what the devil does. But this is not what God's people are supposed to do. And yet I can't get away from the fact that I feel ruffled toward God in light of this text. Why do we have feelings of dismay directed at God rather than Ananias and Sapphira? I think it's because we identify with Ananias and Sapphira. I think that most of us have some of them in us the desire to be thought of as better or more holy or more spiritual or more generous than we really are. I mean, that's pretty common. Most people want to be thought of as better than we really are. I think there's a lot of us, a lot of them, excuse me, in us. But I think it's not only that we could identify with them and see them in us, this desire to appear something that we are not, but I think that we also view sin the same way that they viewed sin. You know how they viewed sin? They viewed sin as a convenient way to get what they wanted. What they wanted was to be highly esteemed and appear more spiritual than they were. The solution to that was a convenient sin. Let's tell a lie, we'll just present a ruse, we'll create a deception. Their view of sin was that it was a convenient way to get what they wanted. And I think a lot of us view sin that way. That's why we tell the little lies. That's why we cheat. That's why we do so many of the things that we do, because we view sin as a convenient way to get what we want. The problem with that is that God views sin differently, the Bible teaches God sees sin for what it really is, incredibly destructive to humanity, to those whom he loves. God sees sin for what it really is, as incredibly destructive. Therefore, God hates sin because of the way sin destroys our lives. And in his sovereignty and his wisdom, he knows and he sees something that we almost never see, and that is the end game of our sin. the end game of our little flirtations with that guy at work. The end game of our web of dishonesty. The end game of our refusals to forgive. He sees the end game of our drunkenness and our 
efforts to numb. He sees the end game of our love of money. God hates sin because of what it does to us. And he knows what it does to us. We whom he loves dearly. He also hates sin because it's an affront to his person and his character and his glory. That's another sermon. And God has always lovingly wanted to rattle his people so that they would begin to see sin the way that he sees it. He wants to, for us in love, unmask sin so that we aren't so easily deceived by it and placated by it and we don't see it as a convenient ends to a mean. He, he wants us to see sin for what it really is. God has always done that. God killing these people here is nothing new. I know we think there's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, but that's malarkey. God has always wanted his people to be rattled through some pretty stark means to see sin for what it is. For example, there's real continuity between this story and between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And this from Deuteronomy. God speaking to his people before they enter the promised land. Through Moses says, if someone, parents are going to love this, kind of. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He'll not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. The intended result from God of both this text in Acts and that text in Deuteronomy is that God's people would learn to be afraid to sin. It's not a surprise that the wages of sin is death. I mean, in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, here's all these trees you could eat from any one of them, but I'm telling you not to eat from that one. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Romans reverberates that in the sixth chapter, the 23rd verse, where it says the wages of sin is death. God takes sin very seriously, unlike us. This is stark frightening sort of language. The intended result, as it says in the last phrase there, is that God's people would be afraid to sin because God has trained them to know that sin will destroy their marriage, their parenting, their families, their communities, their sexuality, their well-being. So in his love, he tries through stark means to rattle us into seeing sin Soberly. And he says you have to purge the evil from among you. Now, historians claim that Israel was never good at carrying through on this, which doesn't surprise us. Israel was never good at much when it came to God's commands. And we can't really blame them. But the message is consistent from that text to this text. And you listening now say, wait a minute. What about grace? What about the gospel? And what about grace? And I think sometimes we can balk at texts like this because we don't have a full enough view, or rather we have a distorted view of the gospel and grace. This text in the book of Acts teaches us to not misunderstand grace. We think that grace means that God is not that concerned about sin. That's what we think grace means. Well, I'm under grace. I could do whatever I want to do. Well, God showed me grace and he let me off the hook. So therefore, sin must not be that big of a deal before God. We think that grace means that God is not that concerned about sin. If that's what we believe, then we could never with any degree of authenticity sing again the song, Amazing Grace. 
the grace that comes to us in the person of Jesus through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the forgiveness that is found therein is only so amazing because God takes so seriously sin and its results. Grace is amazing because what God is willing to forgive through cross and his Christ is so enormous in his sight. Grace doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously. Quite to the contrary. We also misunderstand grace because we, we, we think we don't realize that what grace does, the work of grace in our lives through the cross of Jesus Christ, what it does is free us from sin, not free us to sin. We think, well, I'm under grace, so I could sin. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Grace frees us from sin, its power and its penalty. It doesn't set us free to sin. That's not what God is doing there. What exacerbates this false idea about grace is that we, in our estimation, seem to get away with so much sin. We seem to get away with so much sin. We have to confess that Ananias and Sapphira is not the norm, or you'd all be dead. I'd be dead. We seem to get away with so much sin. But the Bible teaches us that God will deal with all unrepentant sin. And the Bible teaches us that God only deals with sin in one way, judgment. It's the only way that God deals with sin. God judges sin. And that gives humanity then two ways. We can either stand before God in our own sin and be judged for it, or we repent of our sins, put our faith in Christ, who is judge in our place upon the cross, and stand before God in Him, holy, righteous, and forgiven, because His judgment was poured out on Jesus in our place. God only ever does one thing with sin. He judges it. That only ever gives us two options, to stand before God to be judged on our own, or to stand before God in Christ, our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, the Apostle John could write in 1 John 1.9 and say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is amazing grace. And grace only comes to us through Jesus and the gospel and his finished work on the cross. But we think we get away with it because ultimately, big picture, God delays judgment until a certain time. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed on a man to die once and then judgment comes. So we often think in our sin in this lifetime because Ananias and Sapphira sort of dealing is not normative that we're getting away with a bunch of stuff. But Paul writes in Romans and reminds us of this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin, right? Not encourage you to continue in your sin, to turn you from your sin. But because you're stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. So I think sometimes we misunderstand grace because we think we're getting away with something. But there is a final day of judgment. And man, the older I get, 46, the older I get, the more I realize this is true. I'm terrified at the way I see this coming true in my life repeatedly. Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. You reap what you sow is an axiom from God. If we continue to sin, then God will, in his love for us, because he sees the end game of our sin, he will lovingly deal with our unrepentant sin. So we ought to repent of our sin and receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we refuse to, if we don't relent and repent, then we will be disciplined by the Lord. Because he loves us. Look at this excerpt from Hebrews chapter 12. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. 
For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Man, that's one of the most beautiful phrases in all the New Testament. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Got to have the NASB to get that one. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Doesn't that sound better than the grinding, blinding effects of our unrepentant sin? The peaceful fruit of righteousness is the end game that God has for us. But notice he'll discipline us in our lives through various means, reaping what we sow, etc., so that we will be trained through that discipline. Right? To be trained to go away from sin and toward God. And it may very well be that this text in Acts 5 is the loving discipline of God on a young church that for their own good was meant to train them about what the church ought to look like on the inside that they might experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Certainly God's discipline here on the early church, as extreme as it is, would help them be more aware of the schemes of the enemy. It wasn't only the religious leaders we were to fear, it was the secret motives in here. And teach them to resist the temptation to be spiritual fakers. I mean, Jesus just spent three years railing on the spiritual fakers of Israel. He was not about to let his church start going that way and just tolerate it. I think it would have highlighted the fact for them that they, what they may or may not have known, that Satan can influence our thoughts. Right? It says in verse 3, why is it that Satan has filled your heart this way? Satan can influence our thoughts, make us believe that those thoughts originate with us and that they make perfect sense. He plants these ideas about convenient little sins in our lives, makes us think that the thoughts originate with us and that they make perfect sense. I think we see this happening in our culture with sexuality. I know this is happening in our church with couples who are not yet married, sleeping together. I think this happens in the area of our generosity or lack thereof. I think this happens in the way that we excuse ourselves from forgiving people. Satan is able to influence something in here. And the best defense that we have against the lies of the devil is the truth of God. So brothers and sisters, we have to inundate our hearts and minds with God's word. For we have an enemy who is real. And if we only are consuming the messages of movies, I'm going to sound like such an old fuddy-duddy, and TV and social media and entertainment, if we're only consuming those messages and we are never mitigating them, balancing them, confronting and correcting them with the word of God, then we will fall prey to the lies of the enemy. And we will come up with all sorts of little convenient sins that don't seem that big to us. And that's not cool. So we've got to let the word of God dwell richly in our hearts and minds to combat the lies of the enemy so that when the enemy lies to us for our destruction, we can identify, ah, I know I'm thinking this way, but that's not true for the word of God says thus and so. That's the place of the Christian. And God will discipline us to begin to live that way. I think sometimes we miss the discipline of God because we might expect it to look more supernatural like it is, like here with Ananias and Sapphira, but that's not normal. That's actually rare. I think that God uses natural consequences and ordinary means to discipline us so many times. Again, you reap what you sow. Right? We may be experiencing the effects of alcohol abuse physically, relationally, vocationally. God disciplining us. We may be experiencing perpetual dissatisfaction because we're looking for it in everything other than Jesus, God disciplining us. We may be experiencing unending cycles of fiscal mishaps, and yet we never bring our first fruits to the Lord and trust him with a portion of what we received in faith. 
we may be experiencing all sorts of maladies that are perhaps sometimes meant for us to stop and say, what's up with my sin? How does God feel about it in contrast to how I feel about it? And what should I do in light of it? I think it's apropos to ask the question today, what is the Lord saying to you, to us, to me, about our sin? And ask the Lord to help us stop seeing it the way we often do and to start seeing it the way he rightly does. So that we might hear the call of Peter in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn to God that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is the most beautiful word. One of the most beautiful words that we have in the New Testament. Did you notice that Sapphira had an opportunity to repent? When she came in yet and didn't know what happened, Peter said to her in verse 8, Sapphira, is this the amount that you guys got for the land? Again, they weren't under, under any obligation to give it. They were under obligation to be truthful about it. And she missed the opportunity to repent. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the opportunity to repent. You are loved by God. He loves you so much that he's not okay with your sin. Grace is not allowance to sin more. Grace is freedom to sin less by the power of God in you. Step into the power of God and the power of the cross today by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus to show you a better way to exist for the good of your marriages and your kids and your family and our community and our church and beyond. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. As hard as it is, gosh, Lord, I don't know why this happened on Mother's Day. But we ask now that by your spirit, Lord, you draw us into a deep, faithful time of reflection upon your truth and our lives. You would lovingly call us to respond to the promises that we have in the cross of Christ. As we come forward today and we first examine ourselves to make sure that we're doing it in a worthy manner, as sinners will come to the Lord's table but we have to come as penitent sinners. So we examine ourselves and we repent and we come to the Lord's table. Would his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us overwhelm us with joy at the forgiveness we have? How great a debt we've been forgiven. As we prayed today, like the early church prayed, Lord, would you shake us? Make us a bold, unified, generous, loving, faithful church for your glory, Jesus. As we respond to you now, open our eyes to see the dark places that are to be brought into the light of your forgiveness. We ask it in Jesus' name.